Let's, um, let's begin our time with prayer. We have some, several things to pray for. Father, we are a grateful people. Lord, um, we're so thankful. We'll never tire of telling you thank you. We'll never tire of worshiping you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And Father, uh, today I would like to lift up our uh, fellow believers in Nepal who uh, are still struggling, continuing to, to just find simple things like food and water. Um, they would just be happy with that. They don't even have shelter, and they'd be happy, many of them at this point, just with sustenance. I pray that you would continue to sustain them, Lord. Continue to glorify yourself through them. Lord, per their own request, the ones I've heard from, I pray that you would give them opportunities to share their faith with their Hindu and their Buddhist neighbors and friends. Father, we pray for the Reichstag family this week. Lord, as they uh, lost one of their children. And um, Lord, as they prepare to honor him today, I pray that you would be gracious to them, be kind to them. Lord, I don't know what that would be like. So I just call on you, Father, for that mercy and grace, which seems so elusive to us at times that it would be very real to them this afternoon. And Father, we also set aside this weekend as a nation to say thank you for the ones who have um, paid with their lives so that we could be here today. Lord, uh, I'm sorry that that had to happen, but it did. I pray that those families, Lord, uh, that they miss their loved ones, I pray that you would be especially kind to them. And for all the other people in our church, Lord, that have lost a loved one or a friend recently, pray that your mercy would be very rich in their lives during this time. Help us, Lord, to... Continue to learn what it means to be a people of peace. We struggle very hard to be a people of peace. We don't do it very well. In the best of days, Lord, we are often failures. And yet you've told us to pray for peace and to be peacemakers. Help us, God, to, to learn how to do that even better. Lord, we pray these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we are grateful and thankful to him and believe in him. Amen. Okay, we're in a series in Isaiah. Uh, the Lord speaks. We named it that because the opening verse, two verses of Isaiah, the Lord has spoken. And all the way through Isaiah, the Lord speaks. And so we want to hear from the Lord. We wanted to spend time with the Old Testament with you so that you could, um, often we start in the new and head back to the old. We wanted to start in the old and head back to the new for a while so that you could capture a sense of how God is very active. The Old Testament is not foreign to us. Some of the behaviors are, but the, but the involvement of God with people is what we experience. So we've gone through uh, several different things. We started out with the Lord is the Holy One. Right from the very beginning, God claims He is the only God, the one true God, and there is no other, and He will share His glory with no one else. No one else. We serve the one true living God. Let us not forget it. It's fairly easy in our culture to grasp that idea. My uh, students and friends in Nepal and India and cultures that have many other gods, that's a new idea, a new paradigm that there may only be one God. But there's only one true God, and, and we serve him. In Isaiah 2, we move to the idea of the nations, how the Lord loves to bless the nations. But then he goes through 13 chapters of how the nations have been pretty horrible, pretty evil. And... Um, and that presents a problem. What is he going to do with the nations? He looked, um, he looked for justice. He looked at Israel first. He looked for justice, and he found bloodshed. What a surprise. He shouldn't have found that. 
He looked around for righteousness, but he saw cries of distress, especially from the people that couldn't take care of themselves, the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans. Uh, they were crying out because they were being oppressed from the leader. So he looks to the surrounding nations, and guess what? It's the same problem. Everywhere he looked, that's what he found. Then, uh, you, oh yeah, in Isaiah 1 through 39, we're talking about the southern kingdom. They're looking at the northern kingdom of Israel, so the southern kingdom around Jerusalem. They're watching the northern kingdom as they're being annihilated by the Assyrians and split apart, and the country ceases to exist. And so all of the early part of Isaiah is looking at, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't turn back to the Lord. You see, their king had a choice. He could follow the one true living God, or he could make an, a pact or an alliance with the king of Assyria. He chose to pursue peace that way. That was a mistake. It was a mistake. The northern kingdom ceased to exist. So Isaiah 1 through 39 is a reflection of how God felt about that. He was not very happy. They pursued all the gods of the Assyrians and the surrounding nations rather than turning back to the one true God. Beginning in Isaiah 40 through 55, that 15 chapters in there, those are all, um, those are all chapters that you're familiar with. That's where many of our Christmas stories come from. And we've gone forward 150 years now. And the southern kingdom, sure enough, they fell apart. Their country no longer exists. And they've been taken into captivity in other countries around the world. And so God now is giving them a sense of, I have not forgotten you. There's hope coming. We're going to look more into that section today. We looked earlier that the Lord cares for the remnant in Isaiah 40, that he has not forgotten his people. There's always going to be a remnant, and he's always going to love them and care for them. The Lord calls his witnesses in Isaiah 42 and 43. Remember, he called us dumb, I mean, the deaf and blind. We are deaf and blind. He sets up this grand courtroom scene, and he says, let me call all the other gods to the, to the courtroom. I'm going to sue them, and I want to see if they can call witnesses to, de to defend their integrity. Where are your witnesses, O oh gods? Of course, nobody shows up. So then he calls his own witnesses, us, the deaf and blind. Just in chapter 42, he says to Israel, you are deaf and blind, but you're my witnesses. Why are they witnesses? It's not, what makes them credible witnesses is not that they have the right words to say. That's not it. It's not even that they follow the right practices. That's not it. What makes them credible witnesses is the, the one true living God, the God that we serve, works in them in glorious ways. That's what makes them credible. It's not because of what they've done. It's because of what he has done. And you've all tasted and seen that power in your lives at some point. That's what makes you a credible witness. So in the New Testament, what does Peter say? What does John say? What does Paul? We have seen the Lord. We have beheld him. Our hands handled him. Our eyes saw him. We watched him raised from the dead. You cannot take that away from us. We know it's true. It's what God does in our lives that makes us a credible witness. Then in Isaiah 40, well, really all through this whole section, the Lord restores. He is in the business of restoration. He's in the business of fixing what is broken, making whole what has been divided, redeeming those who need help. Last week we looked in Isaiah 52, the Lord has good news, what we call the gospel. He has this incredible news that the, the God of the universe who created everything passionately loves every person and is pursuing them. It's fantastic news. That's where you have the imagery of the person running 
How wonderful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. You picture a walled city and your army goes out to fight a battle. How do you know if they won? Who's coming back? Your army or the opposing army? It's a day of rejoicing or a day of mourning. And then you see a runner coming. It's good news. That's what he's yelling and screaming. We have peace. We have salvation. Our God has rescued us. He has not forgotten us. He is returning back to our city. Yes, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Today, we're going to take a look at the Messiah. The Lord sends his Messiah. So there's this crescendo building. He starts with the horrible aspects of what the Israel, what the nation of Israel is doing, both northern and southern kingdom. And as the book unfolds, it gets more and more hopeful. And so today is kind of the climax. It's the wonderful news. The Lord is going to send his Messiah. But to get there, we're going to weave our way through Isaiah and do it as he does it. So I want you to forget just a moment that you know about Jesus. Okay? And picture this. The people, they've been taken into captivity, no hope, full of despair. The God must not have been who he said he was because our God wouldn't have lost the battle, but he did. Their gods must be more powerful than our gods. So the people are scattered, they're in captivity, and they're in despair, and Isaiah begins to talk. It's wonderful what he says. Isaiah chapter 49, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Boy, you can capture the whole world there. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to him, that's the northern and southern kingdom, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore only the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's too small a thing. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. This is about us. So that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Even though the prophecy is given to Israel... It is directed to the islands and the distant nations. The entire world is involved. So the first question we need to ask is, why is this servant important? Why is it even important? He's called a servant. Why? Back in chapter 42, verse 1, here's what he says in the opening verse. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. The very first thing we learn about this servant is that he's going to bring justice. We need that, don't we? We have arguably one of the best justice systems in the world, and yet we fail, don't we? We all know it could be like, or we have a, a glimpse, a sense of it, but we also know we're not achieving it. And so when this servant comes, whoever it is, 
He'll bring justice. Starting with chapter, I mean, with yeah, chapter 49, we see a subtle, a subtle shift beginning to occur. Because up until this time, he's focused on the nation of uh, Israel and their physical suffering. They've been carried into captivity, rightfully so. He cares for his people. But he begins to shift the focus away from physical captivity to spiritual captivity, not just of Israel, but the entire world. Isaiah's tough to read, isn't it? In fact, these poetry all through here, you're trying to capture the imagery and make sense. It's not the way we talk in our world today. But if we're careful and we walk it through, you'll see that shift occurring, that uh, you have this emerging theme of God cares about our spiritual needs, which is really the core of the problem. So this servant in chapter 49 is going to be a light to the nations, bringing salvation to the entire world. Now remember, don't jump too quickly to Jesus. This seems to be a reference to the nation of Israel. Israel is going to reach out and do their job. Remember, here's God. He surrounds himself with a kaleidoscope of nations, and he chose one, Israel, to reach the rest. So when he begins these, these series of prophecies here, he's talking about the nation of Israel, but then something begins to happen. So this raises a series of questions. How is this possible? Will God ignore the sin of Israel and the rest of the nations? Is he just going to overlook it and turn his back? How is he going to deal with this? Every single place he looks, is there's sinful people. How in the world is Israel going to pull this off? How will the deaf, the blind, the rebellious, that's us, but back in Israel's day, Isaiah's day, how are they going to make this happen? It's not making sense at all. How will God restore the relationship with a broken world? He hasn't given us the answer yet, has he? Don't jump too quick. You're in captivity. It's hopeless. And you're beginning to hear this language. So who is this suffering servant? Or who is this servant? We call him the suffering servant. And then you'll see why in just a second. But think of him now. Right now he's a servant of Israel, a servant of God. And he's going to come and do something. Turn over to chapter 52. Last week we were in chapter 52, at the beginning part, where we have this wonderful news in verse 7. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That's gospel. Who proclaim peace, good tidings, salvation. Who say to Zion, our God reigns. So we finally get to there. We say, all right, we're hopeful. God is going to step in and do something. He's going to reach right down and he's going to overturn all this. He's going to come and show himself strong against all the other gods. He's going to gather his people. We're going to be a kingdom again. It doesn't work that way. We're stunned. We expect something like the overwhelming power of God as soon as he said, the good news is here. But what do we get? We get suffering. We get humiliation. We get loss. I'm going to read this passage to you. It's known to you, but I want to hear the words. This is the answer to God's good news. Who is this servant? Starting in chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's going in the wrong direction. I like the earlier part. He will be raised, lifted, and highly exalted. And then he goes in a totally unexpected place. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. 
and his form marred beyond human likeness. You couldn't even tell he was a human. He was tortured so badly. This is God's answer? He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not, under, what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed their message? Wow, what a great question. Who's going to believe this? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected. He is a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain. Like the one, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain. All of a sudden, the voice shifts. He's focusing on our role in this. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Wow. The punishment that brought peace to us was on him. By his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? No one stood up for him. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord, it's all caps, Lord, this one true living God, it was the will of this one true living God to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Redemption, atonement. He will justify many, many people, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils of the strong because he has poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. It becomes more clear as this passage unfolds that this servant is a person, not a nation a person. We don't yet know who. He was what Israel was meant to be. Kaleidoscope of nations. He chose one, the nation, to reach the rest. They didn't do it. So it slowly becomes obvious that this person, whoever it is, was what Israel was meant to be. He has worldwide influence. What we begin to learn, and this is part of the surprise, is that this power of God is not there to crush the enemy. Not at all. This power is there, this person is there to love the enemy who crushes him. 
It's the opposite. God will not crush the enemy, but when the enemy crushes the servant, God's power responds with love and mercy. And that's true in every one of your lives. Every one of you is guilty. And God chose not to crush you. He crushed his son instead. Well, he crushed this servant instead. We don't know who it is yet. He crushed this servant instead. Instead of you. It's an amazing story. The suffering of the servant was not his own fault. It was the fault of us. His, perfect, his purpose in living and dying was to bring about atonement for sin. Whose sin? Mine. Mine. So what would this servant do? We can now call him the suffering servant. He's the servant who's willing to suffer for us on our behalf. What's he going to do? I'm going to jump all the way over to chapter 61. I'm going to read three verses. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord, this one true living God, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion. He came to help all those who are oppressed. Justice. That's how we started. Justice. That's justice in God's eyes, is to take care of those who are oppressed, those who are mistreated, those who are marginalized, those who can't take care of themselves, widows, orphans, you name it, the list goes on and on. That's justice. The clouds begin to part. We begin to see the sun shining through. And all of a sudden, we capture a glimpse of who this person is. We have the term Messiah. Up until now, he's been using the term servant. But in verse 1, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. And now you begin to hear the language of Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Greek uses the word Christ. Hebrew uses the word Messiah. So Messiah in Christ is the same. It's the anointed one. So whoever this Messiah is, he's coming to help us. There are people who are poor. This is fantastic news. Those of you who have been brokenhearted, some of you are brokenhearted. Captives, captives, prisoners, right? Prisoners. This is what this Messiah is going to do. He's sending his Messiah He has not forgotten us. He's coming to redeem his people to help those who cannot help themselves. That's what redemption is all about. And in the process, he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee. You know what that is? Every 50 years, the debt is canceled and all the slaves are set free. Freedom. 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 Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that God has set us free. We were created for freedom. That's what we're made for. And that's what the Messiah brings, freedom. All right. Who is he? Turn to Luke 4. This is where we'll finish. One of Jesus' earliest acts was to stand up in the synagogue in his hometown Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. 
He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, pause, the captives of the southern kingdom heard these words, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. The faithful waited. Hebrews 11 says that they didn't get to see the promise. It was a future promise to them. They waited. When is it going to happen, Lord? Who is this Messiah? And here's Jesus' words in a little tiny town, his hometown, his own hometown. This is what he said. He quotes the passage we just read in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and with eyes that were twinkling, I added that. (laughs) He sat down. He sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And what does he say? Today. Today. This very second, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That very day. It's Jesus. That's who's the servant. He came to fulfill the gospel of Isaiah. He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He is the one that brings freedom. The Lord's year of Jubilee. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our what? Our debts, our trespasses, our sins. That's freedom. We've been given freedom. He demonstrates that this gospel is for all the world. Look what happens next. All spoke well of him. The entire synagogue is abuzz with excitement. Today, all the promises, all of them today happened. They spoke well of him. They were amazed at his words because he's just a carpenter. Is this Joseph's son, they asked? So Jesus could have stopped it right there and let the good news lie, but he doesn't. So Jesus said, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourselves, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard about in Capernaum. So he looks at him and he says, You're going to quote this proverb, heal, uh, Physician, heal yourselves. You know what that means? Prove it. Demonstrate it. Show us a sign. Do a miracle. Do anything. But I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of the Israelites, but to a widow in the region of Sidon. She is a Gentile. So even back in Elijah's time, God was reaching out beyond Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus says, you want me to prove it? It's already been done. God went to the Gentiles. They were incensed. Look at the very next verse. 
all the people in the synagogue were furious. He's one of us. He came to help us, the Israelites. And they learned in that one second that God had a bigger plan. God sent his Messiah. God loves this whole world, his entire creation, all of it. Paul says the entire creation is groaning and waiting. The one true living God who made everything you see as beautiful as it is, and it's snowing right now. Look at that. <laughs> Skiing's going to be great tomorrow. As beautiful as it is, that one true living God cares about all of us. He sent us on Jesus. Here's what I'd like to do to close our time. I'd like you to take just a moment, and I want you to reflect on Jesus and what he did. Sometimes I apologize and I say, I'm so sorry that my sin cost you your death. Sometimes I pray and I say, I'm so sorry, God, that it takes a baseball bat to get my attention. I got such a thick skull. So I want you to take just a moment and remember Jesus. God, there's no way we could ever possibly understand all that you did. But there's a few things we know for sure. We know you love us. We know that you forgive us. We know you didn't forget us. You remember us. We know that you sent Jesus so that you could be with us. We know he died on the cross. And we know that was pleasing in your sight and you forgave our sin. And Jesus, we know that your love for us was so powerful, beyond what we can experience, but we just have a taste of it. We know that your love for us is real. We know that you gave the ultimate sacrifice, your own life for us, so that you could be with us, you could redeem us, you could take us as your own people, and you could love us. Thank you for that. We are sorry that our sin cost you so much, but we are grateful that you were willing to pay it. Amen. And ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Don't just make it about money. Don't do that, please. Paul says in the Corinthian epistles that this good news that we believe in, that the way we give our money is a, is a reflection of what our belief is in the gospel. Make it something deeper than writing a check, putting cash in, Whatever you do, however you do it, make it something deeper than that. Make it a statement about the gospel. It's between you and the Lord. All I'm going to say to you is thank you for your generosity. We are, we are blessed because of you as a congregation. Thank you. Make it something more than money.
We stood around him on a cold August day. Blazing sunshine, 